So we are a global nonprofit and we have a presence in over 23 countries with almost 33 offices around the world. And we are an anti-trafficking or anti-human trafficking uh, organization. So in different parts of the world, we are engaging in different kinds of casework, human rights related issues. So we have casework in bonded labor, in online sexual exploitation of children, in uh, intimate partner violence. So depending on what the contextual problem is, IGM has been trying to support governments in strengthening justice systems to bring people out of situations of violence and to help them into situations of uh, into uh, an environment of restoration and safety. So how we do this is quite interesting. And um, just to give a little background about uh, me, I, I'm, I'm a lawyer in India. So for the past five years before I moved to London, I was working with the Mumbai office where we were working on the sex trafficking casework. Uh, I could probably use that as an example to tell you how IGM does its casework. So we are aware of the crimes that are taking place. We know that sex trafficking of minors is an issue in Mumbai. So we work with the police. So we have a team of investigators who works with the police and um, you know, tries to uh, identify where situations, identify situations where children are being exploited. Then we work with them and try to bring them out of that out of that situation. Then we work with the prosecutors in prosecuting these traffickers, and our lawyers support the cases in court. Our social workers, on the other hand, work with the survivors and help them to be rehabilitated and integrated into uh, the system, providing them a trauma-informed care and all sorts of uh, social welfare and support that they would require to come back to a life of uh, wholesomeness. Um, so yeah, so depending again on where the context is, um, our solutions are curated in order to provide the best possible support to the survivors, but also to be working with the system to ensure that that situation of exploitation is being taken care of. Now, having done this for over 20 years, we have had Witness, we have witnessed some pretty amazing success over the past uh, 20 years. We have been able to bring uh, around 76,000 people and more out of situations of exploitation and violence across the world, bring them into safety. Um, also, we have been able to convict more than 4,600 perpetrators of different kinds of violence uh, across the world, including bonded labor and forced labor and online sex child sexual exploitation. Apart from that, while we are working on the crime itself, we also work with the community. Uh, we also work with the police and we increase their capacity to be able to respond to these crimes. So it's not just about taking uh, taking cognizance of the crime that is happening, but to also build the capacity of the system so that they are able to take forth this work. And this is also a, a way we are able to expand our work and expand our solutions at scale. So that has also resulted in amazing numbers. I mean, in the sense that more than 305,000 people have been trained. This includes officials from courts, from the law enforcement, as well as from community. Um, having done this work for 20 years now, IGM has been able to refine and crystallize its theory of change. What we have realized is that crime is thriving in places where there is an inadequate protection of the law. So we might have laws in place, we might have the justice system in place, but if there is inadequate protection, there has always been exploitation. That's where IGM has been trying to step in to bridge in that gap. We are not trying to implement it ourselves. We stand by the system and help them do it, considering the fact that there are so many problems that can you know, take up um, the prior the priorities of any system, IGM is able to provide its niche guidance 
especially in the trafficking area, and tell the system how they can be uh, taking care of uh, these issues. And the second thing we've realized is that wherever there is inadequate protection of law, there uh, and inadequate implementation of law, there there's always been a set of people who are ready to exploit those who are not protected. So exploitation by ways of why through violence, through coercion, through mental and physical abuse has been prevalent in all these situations as well. So in, in all in all, IGM has been able to you know, articulate its theory of change where we are trying to basically strengthen justice systems to be able to deter further crimes. Even if you could want the next slide, I think that's articulated over there. Um, maybe we hope before it's all right. So yeah, so we have been working for this, working on this theory for the past 20 years. In many jurisdictions, we have seen results and now we are coming to a place where we want to scale and we want to employ this theory in many more jurisdictions so that many more people are being protected. Now, having given you an, a background of our work, I think it's time for us to zoom into India, which is my country. It's a beautiful country. Uh, if you all have had the privilege of going there till now, but it is also an extremely complex country. You would know if you have been to India that every 100 kilometers, the culture changes, the food changes. There is, uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a country of many mini countries where diversity is at its peak. Having that complexity and diversity also brings about its own set of problems because traditions change, culture changes. You also have your own traditional sets of practices and uh, language barriers and um, and also the fact that the caste system is so huge in India does not help. It uh, again entraps a lot of people into slavery. So all these complexities have caused diverse have has caused diverse problems in the country. One of it is bonded labor. So um, to give you a context, we know that, I mean, this is a known figure that almost 40 million people are entrapped in slavery across the world. Um, and it's sad to know that almost 8 million people, according to Walk Free Foundation, are in India itself. Knowing a little bit about the background of the economic structure of, the, of India would also provide some context. 90% um, of India's economy is being supported by the informal economy. So these are people who are not given uh, adequate social and financial protection by law itself. They are um, they are taken into employment through informal means. Uh, they in, in in the time of uh, a need, there is no guarantee that they would be taken care of. This is something we saw during the pandemic, where almost. Uh, overnight when the lockdown had been announced, almost 120 million people had taken onto the streets. That's when a lot of people realized how reliant we were on the informal economy, the informal invisible economy, and uh, how much they contributed. As per figures, they contribute to almost 30 to 50 percent of the GDP. Such a huge contingent of people contributing to the country's economy and prosperity and ease, everyday ease is not being taken care of right now. And it is even sadder to know that most of these people are stuck in situations of bonded labor. Now, to, pro to, uh, make, to give you a context about what bonded labor itself is in India. Bonded labor, the system of bonded labor in India goes back hundreds of years. It is a situation where a person is kept in a in debt bondage. So as an example, a person may have taken, say, 100 rupees, um, but from a landowner. And in return, the landowner would have asked him to be working for him to pay off that debt. 
that person has probably been paying off that debt for the past 20 to 30 years. His family was probably being paying off that debt. His children are probably paying off that debt. So this has carried on through generations and the debt may have been cleared probably in the first or second year itself. But due to the fact that these people do not are not literate enough, um, do feel compelled and uh, coerced and blackmailed. And because the landowners can be extremely exploitative, this entire situation is taken advantage of and people are kept in debt bondage for the longest period of time. And um, we see that. Again, it is very sad that this continues through generations, so this has been a problem again for years and the Indian uh, and the Indian legal system had abolished it. In fact, it is it is abolished by the Constitution of India itself. In 1976, there were laws that were made that banned this system, but unfortunately it still exists in different parts of the country. Um, and there has been some sort of you know, tacit denial to its existence, but because of many people on working on the ground, including IJM and many other partners, governments have been more open to understanding that this issue definitely exists and something has to be done about it. So we've seen over the past two, three years that state governments have been, you know, openly acknowledging the existence of this problem and they've even dedicated days, uh, official days in the calendar to um, bring up, bring about awareness about this issue, also to show that a lot needs to be done to completely eradicate it from the country. So yeah, so that has, um, you know, the bonded labor problem has only been exacerbated by COVID-19 as well, because ever since um, we know that a lot of things have gone back to normalcy since the lockdowns have been lifted, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, as per preliminary studies that have been conducted, we've, we've seen that almost 122 million jobs were lost. And uh, the easiest option then is for people to fall back into the informal economy. And more often than not, we saw, uh, we've seen that poverty has also increased. So again, as per few studies that have been con uh, that have been con uh, conducted, the number of individuals who lie before the national minimum age, which is less than four pounds, has increased by 213 million during the pandemic. Now, we're not suggesting that all of them would be, you know, going into bonded labor kind of situations, but we know that there will be a significant rise because economic vulnerability, economic and social vulnerability has increased. We also know that, you know, ease of doing business, um, our interaction with the global supply chains have become much more easier. And we and, you know, even for me, it was difficult to fathom how a person working in a situation of bonded labor is contributing or is connected to the global supply chains. But we conducted a study in IGM last year where we analyzed almost 625 cases which we have conducted over the past 20 years to find out the links between cases that are, say, found in Tamil Nadu to the global supply chain. To our astonished, we were astonished to find that there, in fact, were linkages. In one particular case, uh, which was of a sugar mill, we found that uh, in this case, uh, 28 bonded laborers were rescued. But we found also that um, there were a mil there were many other violations against this company uh, where they had refused to pay wages, where they had treated their workers badly, where a person had even been crushed in one of uh, the sugar churning machines, sugarcane churning machines. Despite all these, uh, despite all these violations, we came to realize that this company was still supplying to the global market. And that even after the cases had been uh, taken on, their productions had not been stopped or hindered in any way. 
In fact, um, you know, their export had probably only been the same or even increased after uh, these uh, after these cases had been lodged. So these are problems uh, we could see within our own casework that there is a, there there is a direct connection, and I'm I'm sure that if you know more was analyzed, we would have been able to unearth them. Uh, also, IGM in Australia has conducted a recent report in which, according to uh, their Modern Day Slavery Act, they analyzed the modern day slavery statements of many com companies and they realized that um, most of these statements are inadequate. They don't mention the exact, um, you know, the exact steps that they're taking to mitigate uh, situations of slavery in their supply chains. And most, and, and they, India and Australia have a very, uh, a very a large, uh, there's a large, um, for almost 2.2 um, billion, 2.2 uh, billion USD worth of goods are being exported from India to Australia. And despite this large value of goods that are being undertaken, there has there the response to ensure that there is protection for the workers exporting these goods or in any any parts of their supply chains is inadequate, absolutely inadequate. So this was again a recent report that they released and um, again our teams over there have been advocating with the globe uh, with corporates over there to increase their diligence due diligence as much as possible. We also realize the problem that you know uh, that supply chains are intricate, they're web, they're multi-layered and they are very far away from the from the parent company. So it is sometimes impossible to be imposing any sort of direct supervision. But that's when we encourage corporations to also work and you know advocate with the local governments or the state governments wherever they are to increase the implementation and protection of the law within the jurisdiction where that operation is taking place. Now, um, Having said that, in we have when we when we talk about IGM's theory of change and IGM's casework, this has actually yielded a lot of fruit. Where recently one of our operations, one of our programs in the Chennai office is concluding, and we've seen that when we're working with the state government, we're working with the system, there is an a, a reduce or a reduction or the prevalence of bonded labor in the districts to a very great degree. So this is what we are trying to advocate with corporations as well, where they advocate. To with state governments and work with the state governments to reduce the prevalence of these crimes. Um, I mean, when we talk about supply chains and value chains, it's all, always in terms of money, numbers, laws, etc. But there's always a story behind the exploitation. There's always a face behind the exploitation. And if I can share a picture of Dayalu and Nilambar with you, these are two bonded laborers who were a part of a group of 12 who were being trafficked in the state of Odisha and when they and when they realized that they were being trafficked 10 were able to escape but these two weren't the traffickers were furious and they tortured them very badly for days and um i think one night in a fit of rage they just asked and they, they were intoxicated and they just asked both of them what should we chop off your right hand or your left foot and um, they both chose for their right hands to be um chopped off and it Eventually, they were able to escape and find safety and uh, IGM, they were in IGM's rehabilitation program. But uh, the point being that, you know, when we talk about global value chain, et cetera, et cetera, there it's, it's, it's an economical issue. But behind every exploitation, there is a face, there is a family, there's a life that is uh, being affected in, 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 in gruesome ways. So, yeah, um, wanted to share the story with you as well. 
Now, coming just to, I mean, I should just wrap up, but coming to the end of it, I mean, what are the different asks that we are making of um, corporations? We see that we realize that it is extremely complex. These supply chains are not as um, are not as linear as we would hope them to be to exert the kind of control and supervision. We understand that, but you know, I think acknowledgement of the fact that you know that they are complex and that criminal activity may increase may direct our motivations to at least try to take care of them and use solutions that are available through organizations that are providing it. Apart from that, we also realize that. Um, the current efforts of just, you know, making statements or just conducting due diligence is not uh, an adequate response. We need uh, for the law to be for the laws to be implemented. We need to be working with the justice systems to ensure that it is not just the supply chain in the sense that you know certain bottlenecks are taken care of, but it is a community of people who are exposed to any kind of violence around that supply chain is also being protected. Also. We, yeah, so uh, when it comes to the UNGP principles, there are three, uh, which is basically the state's duty to protect, the corporate, uh, corporate responsibility to respect and remedies in case uh, of any violation. So we feel that the first one the, is most important, that is the duty to protect, which can only be implemented by states and the other two go hand in hand for sure. And um, yeah, and corporations do hold significant power and we hope that, you know, um, as they realize the kind of power they wield, they can be working more closely with governments to implement um, uh, to implement the law so that, you know, it, it is we're creating systems that are sustainable and um, wholesome for many people and for years to come. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mary. That was very insightful. Um, Detailed and quite quite upsetting as well, as opposed particularly with the you know when when it goes as simply down to the the picture of the two men that had been tortured and and that's the reality of it, isn't it? And that's how bonded labour can work. Um, I'll ask everyone just now if there's anyone has any questions for Mary, go ahead, stick your hand up, or we can get Neil to crack on and we can have some Q and A towards the end. And I've got a few questions myself. I don't see any hands. So I'm just going to, I've got Neil's presentation here. So let me just get myself ready to roll. It's not the right one. Sorry, yes. Neil, I'm... That was, that was the right one. Oh, it was the right one. Okay, bear with me. Is that showing up on everybody's screen? My Wi-Fi's been quite slow in the office today. Can you see that? Has that come up there, guys? That looks good. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Sham. Um, so hi everyone. Um, I, I have spoken um, on one of the Sam's uh, talks before, but um, for those who don't know me, I'm Neil Wilkins. I'm head of the Migrant Workers Programme at the Institute for Human Rights and Business. Um, so IHRB, we're a civil society organisation um, and we work uh, closely with business, governments, trade unions and civil society 
um, looking at how uh, business operations impact um, on on human rights, uh, mostly of their workers, but also of um, other stakeholders um, connected to their um, operations. Um, next slide, please, uh, Shan. And I'm uh, a migrant worker uh, specialist, um, and I think it's important to note that migrant workers actually drive uh, the global economy. Um, there's 169 million migrant workers in the world. That's 5% or 1 in 20 of the global workforce. So 1 in 20 of all workers is a migrant worker. And um, another interesting little fact is in 2021, uh, the remittances from migrant workers contributed 589 billion uh, to developing economies. So that's three times the amount of uh, overseas development um, assistance. So um, migrant workers play a considerable uh, role um, in the global economy. And I know that many of you um, engage and work alongside and with uh, migrant workers in, in your particular um, operations. And migrant workers um, undertake a range of tasks. They make many of the things that we uh, choose to buy, the things that we choose to wear, the things that we choose to eat. Um, if you look at the picture of the woman on the right hand side there, anyone who's having a, a tuna sandwich um, this lunchtime. Uh, so this is a migrant worker from Myanmar working at a fish processing factory um, in Thailand. Um, there are there in this particular factory, there were about 200 women um, uh, working uh, alongside each other in there, and they spend eight to 10 hours a day flaking tuna fish um, from fish carcasses. Um, this is the photo that I try to show my daughter um, when she's moaning about having to do tasks around the house um, or moaning about um, how she doesn't know what job she wants to do. Um, and I can very easily remind her that for many people in the world, um, you know, her life would be a bowl of cherries. Um, it's, you know, and this is a best practice um, fish factory. Um, it's, um, you know, somewhere where workers are treated um, well. But um, migrant workers, significant contributions to the global economy. Uh, next slide, please, Shan. And we're going to see an increase in migrant workers. Um, the first reason we will is because that we have aging populations um, in the developed um, world. Um, so um, the fact that I'll read it out, but in 2015, 12.3% um, of the global population over 60, but you can see um, that this is set to rise um, exponentially. And uh, aging populations will firstly need migrant workers to support them um, in their care uh, and looking after them in their increasingly long-lived uh, retirements. And so we um, already see many migrant workers being drafted in to supply um, various uh, services um, in the care industry, in retirement homes and in uh, national health services and hospitals um, around the world. Um, but also the other reason is that we will need migrant workers to um, earn uh, money to provide the tax take that will be necessary 
to support the global economy and aging populations um, as they get older. So we are only going to see an increase um, in migrant workers for these reasons um, uh, uh, over the next uh, 20, 30 years. Uh, next slide, please, Sham. And the other reason that we are going to see an increase in migrant workers and migrants generally is because of the impacts of climate crisis. We are going to see workers on the move and this will be down to um, environmental pressures um, that many workers will be driven from the land. Um, this might be through uh, desertification of farmland, uh, salination of farmland where farmland gets flooded by seawater. Um, or it might be the total opposite. There might be um, flooding and inundation of uh, productive farmland. All of these forcing people to leave the leave the land. And we're also going to see it because of economic um, pressures. And this is the one that sometimes gets forgotten. But as old carbon heavy industries uh, reliant on fossil fuels um, close down, we're going to see movement of workers from those industries. It's unfortunate that many of those industries um, employ large numbers um, of not always highly skilled workers. And many of them are in places where there are no um, sort of alternatives. So to give you an example of this, we were talking to a mining company in South Africa. Um, they have a mine that produces heavy coal, one of the um, chief sources of uh, global warming. And it, it, they know that it's going to have to close down as part of their um, uh, adaption processes. They're going to have to close that mine down. Now it employs 10,000 people most of them low wage, low um, skilled, and it supports the entire community um, around it. So when that mine closes, it won't just be the, the particular workers from that mine, it will be the community that it supports as well, will be under extreme pressure. And it will see inevitably these, these workers having to move it. They're not in a place where they could retrain as computer programmers or anything like that. There's no, not going to be any tourism around there. They will simply have to move and migrate. So we're going to see lots of workers on the move. And this is going to lead to um, a growth of cities. Um, and we're already seeing this um, uh, capital cities like Dhaka in Bangladesh are seeing enormous increases in workers moving there to try to find work, any work, any job. Um, and this um, will uh, create pressures. There'll be arguments around, OK, the, um, uh, the climate crisis will produce new green jobs. But whose jobs are they? Are, for the, are they for settled populations where the new G green jobs will be located? Or will there be influxes of workers trying to find work in that new green uh, economy? And we need to be paying a lot of attention to this. And the expression you'll hear a lot more about going forward um, is this idea of the just transition. How do we make the transition to this new economy um, just and fair? Um, for workers. But going back to the growth of cities, I think that we'll, we'll start to see a lot of issues around social cohesion. How will cities be developed to accommodate big influxes of workers? How will those workers um, uh, and migrant workers be received? How will companies um, react to that? And as uh, Mary from IGM was saying, nearly always in situations where they're um, are pressures 
on workplaces and workers, there's usually people who will take advantage um, of that. And when people are desperate for work, um, the um, incentives to try and take advantage of those um, workers um, become even greater. And so it's something that all businesses will have to um, be very aware of and um, uh, adjust their policies um, and processes um, to make sure that workers within their supply chains and within their operations um, aren't exploited. Just on social cohesion as well, I also think that there is a role for business in familiarising um, workforces with each other. What is it that companies can do to make sure that um, potentially different nationalities or people from different areas of a given country um, can um, work alongside each other um, without a sort of um, uh, the breakdown um, that might um, be inherent if, if workers start um, competing um, for jobs. Uh, next slide, please, Jim. Um, so uh, I just want to finish really on talking about the Dakar principles for migration with dignity. As we've said, 169 million migrant workers um, in the world. And um, you know, it's it's very easy to think. Um, so you you read the label in a uh, shirt that you buy, or you look at the box of uh, um, the new uh, charger plug that you've got for an Apple computer or whatever, and it will say made in Malaysia, or it will say uh, made in Mauritius, or wherever it might be. And it's easy to think that it's the people of that country that are making um, those goods. But of course, very often it's actually migrant workers working in those countries as well. If you buy um, products from uh, Apple um, or Hewlett-Packard, they're likely to have been made by Bangladeshi workers or Nepali workers um, working in, um, in, in Malaysia. Or if, if um, it comes from Taiwan, it's likely to have been made by uh, Filipino workers um, or Vietnamese or Indonesian um, workers. Um, so um, please don't think that just because it says something on the label that that means it was made by indigenous workers from that country. Very often um, it doesn't. And wherever we look, migrant workers aren't treated with the dignity and respect that they uh, that, that they should do, and it's their um, their right and their human right. Um, and when we started undertaking work around migrant workers, we looked around and there were actually a lot of uh, different principles and uh, different guidances and toolkits and various ILO labour conventions that could easily be applied to migrant workers. But they were separated out. They were siloed. There were bits here and bits there. And when we uh, formulated the DACA principles, what we were trying to do was pull together um, all of the various guidance and uh, tools that there were into one easily usable and understandable um, tool and framework um, for, for business. Um, next slide, please, Shan. And IHRB always try to make a virtue of making our information very plain and simple so that business um, and anyone actually um, can understand it. Everything that we do 
um, is backed up by various uh, UN conventions and best human rights practice and all of those things that take a 30 page report um, to actually explain and tell you about. But the DACA principles were aimed primarily um, at business. And this is one side of a double sided PDF um, that just shows you all of the challenges that a migrant worker might face. And you can take it round from one round to 10. Um, it starts with recruitment, it goes through an employment phase, and then on to um, safe return. And these are all of the challenges that migrant workers, but more importantly, those who uh, would recruit and employ them might face at each stage of a typical uh, sort of migration cycle. Migration cycles tend to last uh, two to three years for most uh, migrant workers. Um, a lot of our focus more recently has been on the way that migrant workers um, are recruited and I know that that's of particular pertinence to uh, many of many of the people on this call because you many of you work for recruitment agencies or employment agencies and of course we know that many migrant workers are subject to uh, large recruitment fees to secure employment abroad. When uh, Mary was talking earlier, um, you know, we were talking about some of the most extremes um, in some ways of um, exploiting workers and trafficking and modern slavery and those things. But um, that's one end of the, of the scale. Very often um, it's very normal and common practices um, such as the charging of recruitment fees to migrant workers that leaves them vulnerable um, to exploitation. Typically, a migrant worker traveling to, if we took a migrant worker traveling from Nepal um, to work in, in Malaysia, they would be paying recruitment fees of maybe two, three thousand dollars in a job that would probably only pay them about maybe, if they were lucky, fifteen hundred dollars a year. So they might spend their first two years paying off their recruitment debt. And it's this indebtedness that makes workers vulnerable, because if you're in a situation of debt, it's very difficult to say no and to assert your rights. And so other things then start happening to those migrant workers, pay, conditions, living accommodation, all of those things. It becomes harder and harder to challenge um, those things. So that's why we spend such a lot of time focusing on uh, recruitment fees and my organisation um, um, advocate for a thing called the employer pays principle, which is no worker should pay for a job. All of the costs of recruitment should be borne not by the worker, um, but by the employer and ourselves, many other NGOs and increasingly many businesses are now starting to realise that it is not right that recruitment fees are a business cost and should be paid by business and um, it's not right that workers um, get charged those fees. But the DACA principles um, are there. Please, um, there's a DACA principles website. If you put, um, it, put it into a search engine, um, you will find more detail on each of these principles as an implementation guide where you can get yet further um, detail. And they're also translated. I think we're currently at 17 languages. I know that we've got a backlog of new languages um, to get them translated into. But many of the languages of the workforces that you'll be dealing with, um, that you'll find um, versions of the DACA principles in the appropriate languages um, on the website. 
And uh, finally, next next slide, please, Sham. Um, it's actually 10 years since we first, it, it seems incredible, but it's 10 years since we first uh, developed and launched the DACA principles. The reason they're called the DACA principles actually is um, DACA is the capital of Bangladesh and um, it, uh, we launched them at a consultation we were holding um, in Bangladesh um, at the time that was attended by the Bangladeshi government. Um, we rather hoped that the Bangladesh government might really get behind them. I think it was a bit of wishful thinking, um, to be honest, because that didn't transpire. But the name, um, the name DACA principles um, stuck and um, they're quite well known and referenced by business, civil society and uh, governments. Um, now and uh, to celebrate 10 years of the DACA principles if you go on the IHRB website you can find uh, we're doing we uh, very fortuitously um, there are 10 plus 2 DACA principles one for each month of the year and so each month um, there's a different commentary um, from a different stakeholder talking about why a particular principle um, is important if we're looking to effectively manage um, migrant workers. So um, we're we're uh, halfway through um, at the moment. So please, um, you might might be interested in checking out some of those um, some of those commentaries. So Shan, sorry, I'll I'll stop there. Um, that's migrant workers. Um, anyone got any questions or please um, follow up via uh, email check out the DACA principles website um, and please please in particular um, it's this employer pays principle increasingly used by businesses around the world we have our own leadership group who are making sure that workers in their supply chains uh, at least in theory aren't playing uh, recruitment um, recruitment fees the british government in their own modern slavery statement uh, referenced the importance of paying attention to recruitment and actually referenced the employer pays uh, principle there as well. And some of you might be aware that there's been a number of cases where goods destined for the American markets have been stopped by withhold release orders, as they're called at the American um, border. Um, uh, the big one was um, a lot of PPE equipment, um, uh, surgical gloves um, were held until workers have been repaid uh, recruitment fees. So so it's it's a this is a key key a labor rights and human rights issue um, for anyone employing migrant workers around the world and i'm afraid it's it's um, not the case that this only happens in the global south you know there are plenty of examples where workers come into the uh, work in great britain have been charged recruitment fees um, as well and i'm sure many of you know that only um, only too well, a situation that's not been improved by um, Brexit and the uh, new uh, markets for labour um, that the British government has opened up. I'm sure many of you know as much or if not more about that than I do. Shan, sorry, thank you. No problem. Neil and Mary, thank you very much. Very, very insightful, Neil, uh, with regards to that global aspect and the, the, the amount, the vast amount of migrant workers. I've just taken down some statistics, but one in twenty workers is a migrant. One in twenty. That's that's huge, and it just makes me think of as we go into World Cup season about the stadiums that were built and everything that we spoke about before, Neil. And you know, as we watch those matches, it, it, exactly. And we should now be thinking about the hotel workers, 
because they too will now be subject to recruitment fees to secure their jobs in the hotels as well. So anyone travelling um, to the World Cup, and I'm, I'm, of course, I'm very sorry for Scot Scottish football fans, and we better not go there. But um, yeah, anyone travelling to the World Cup should um, be paying attention to, you know, who's cleaning your hotel room, what are the paying conditions, um, have they paid recruitment fees, um, and we should be asking this of the travel companies as well. You know, if if a travel company is making an arrangement with a hotel um, in Qatar, what checks are they undertaking as well? So. There's a role for all of us to play there, but it doesn't stop uh, with construction. Interesting. That's, a, that's, a, that's got a really human aspect about it for people that are travelling as well, you know, just generally as well. Absolutely. About the if anybody has any questions, please raise your hand. I've got a couple of couple of points I'd like to kind of raise with both of the speakers here. Um, and, and the first one I'd like to ask about is probably Neil and Mary as well, just broadly speaking. Neil, you talked about in, in the DACA principles before about the access to remedy. Um, can you explain a bit more what that is? And and Mary, is that something that you know you, you've seen if a business, if, you know, globally uncovers something? And I'm just going to put this and and at this point as well because I was reading at the weekend about Leicester and about what we know happening in the UK you know, a number of years ago, not that long ago. Let's be honest, but actually. It's still happening in Leicester. That's the 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 police investigation so far has shown that this this is still going on in the UK. So, um, can I just ask access to remedy? What what does it mean, and how does it work? Uh, uh, Mary, if you don't mind, if, if I jump in, um, you you know, if you talk to migrant workers, the one thing that they usually want is um, access to remedy, and remedy usually. Um, involves being paid money um, that they're that they're owed. Um, I think the experience usually is that uh, workers um, who have suffered some kind of in, uh, injustice, they're not always quite so interested in criminal prosecutions and things like that. And that's unfortunate because that's very often how governments uh, judge um, these things. And criminal prosecutions are important. Uh, to prevent wrongdoing in the future and and these sort of situations. But to the migrant workers themselves, nearly always, um, sorry, I've said migrant workers, to all workers themselves, nearly always um, it's it's access to money um, that is owed them that's that's most most important. And it's it's that reparation um, that is is the thing that will make a real difference to them um, and, and their lives. They're less interested in criminal prosecution. Um, that And like I say, that doesn't mean that others shouldn't be interested in, in criminal uh, prosecution because it, it sort of sets a precedent and prevents wrongdoing. Um, but I think, and I mentioned the top glove uh, situation, you know, having to make reparations, having to make remediation payments to those workers who'd paid recruitment fees has sent a big shock message to, uh, in that situation, the company Top Glove. And we hope, uh, you know, and they're the biggest rubber glove manufacturer in Malaysia. We hope that then spreads throughout the industry. And of course, now Top Glove are trying to make sure that everyone pays recruitment fees to workers because otherwise they're disadvantaged. Um, in, in the market. So these are why these things are um, important. Um, there are an increasing number of organisations focused on providing tools and guidance for companies about how to set up effective 
grievance mechanisms that workers trust, understand and will use. And the one that I would recommend off the top of my head um, is by the Remedy Project. Um, so if you, if you just put Remedy Project into a into a search engine, um, you'll find tools and guidance um, that they've produced. And the one interesting thing that I'd point out, there's, a, there's about a, a set of eight uh, tools or guidance steps that they've produced. But tool number one is actually tool number zero because they start at zero and they say it's about uh, trust. It's about explaining to migrant workers and it's about engagement. Sorry, I've said migrant workers again. It's about engagement with workers. So what is it that a company is doing to engage with their workforce that a grievance mechanism can then be trusted and respected and that workers will then uh, use it. I'll stop there, otherwise I'll carry rabbiting on and, and I'm sure that Mary's got something to add in. No, that was great, Neil. I think you covered everything. I would just add um, access to remedy from, um, say, a non-UNGP uh, perspective would also be getting compensation from the courts. So in case of a prosecution of a case, um, victims of, say, uh, human trafficking, depending on the law of the land, is also eligible for compensation so that they can, you know, uh, set up their lives once again. But this would not be from the business itself, but from the state. So, yeah, that's what I would add to that, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. We have a raised hand. Um, Maria Hughes from Cap Gemini. Good, uh, good afternoon, all. No, I just had a had a question um, where you were saying, um, Neil, about um, being being aware of um, hotel workers and and what have you, and so sort of because that's some an area that I'm I'm looking at um, within our business. And how what would you do? How would you go about identifying whether the hotel that you've picked um, is uh, is at risk. I mean, it's it's a difficult conversation to have with the person that's that's sort of cleaning your room. There may be a um, a language issue as well. Um, but yeah, so what sort of steps would you would you undertake? No, um, it's it's a good question and one that companies should uh, actually be asking, particularly if they perhaps have national or regional agreements with particular hotel chains that their staff would be uh, using um, a particular hotel. I think the first thing is to actually ask the question, do does your hotel brand um, and of course the hotels often operate to a franchised uh, model, but does your hotel brand have a policy on the payment of recruitment fees? Because many, even of the largest hotel brands, um, do not. Um, and we need to constantly be putting pressure on the big brands. The way that the hotel model often works is there's a large use of agency staff. Um, and so they, the hotel companies often hide behind their contracts with an agency and say, well, paying conditions or the fact that they might have paid a recruitment fee are nothing to do with us. We just have a contract with that agency. Well, that's that's not good enough, you know, because the hotel could very easily be um, inserting clauses into their service level agreements to make sure that those workers haven't paid 
um, uh, recruitment fees or aren't being exploited um, in in any other way. So I, I do think it is. It's absolutely about making sure that we ask the questions and for us to hold in particular the big brands um, to account um, for this. I mentioned the franchise model um, for hotel companies and you know, it, I, and they always say, oh, it's very difficult for us um, to impose a lot of uh, criteria on our franchisees. Um, it just makes the, the list longer and longer and longer. But, you know, in most of those franchisee models, there's what's called a brand Bible, where you agree to operate a hotel along a certain set of parameters. And that might include stuff right down to the fluffiness of the pillows in the hotel room. You know, there, there's a very, very strict thing that when you go into a Hilton hotel, whoever is managing that for Hilton, you will know that it's a Hilton hotel. So there is no reason that they couldn't also include uh, key clauses about the way that their workforce um, is engaged and employed and recruited. So it really is about asking the question and there's not been enough pressure put onto the hotel industry. And, um, you know, that's why I mentioned about the World Cup. It's now turned for the, att the attention to turn to the hotel companies. That's the next, um, that's the next um, stage uh, of of where um, sort of exploitation will take place. The other thing that hotels tend to do is if you talk to them about trafficking, they will always tell you about the marvellous work that they've done to prevent sex trafficking. And, you know, hats off to them. There is no doubt about it. Hotels have done good work around that, educated their own workforces and um, done training for their people. And there's usually cards in hotel rooms now and all of those sort of things to prevent sex trafficking within hotels. But if you turn and ask a hotel about, OK, that's great. Uh, I can see that you've done really good work on sex trafficking there. How are your cleaners recruited? And they don't always have such a cheerful tale um, or involved tale to um, to tell. So uh, it's when um, when the risk is perceived as being external, they perhaps are more inclined to do something about it. But when it's internal within their hotel operations, perhaps less inclined. So um, I think that we just need to keep asking questions and putting pressure um, on them. And if any companies um, sometimes have national agreements with particular hotel chains that you'll only use a certain hotel chain and you get a deal and all the rest of it, that is a good time to ask those questions um, as well. So is anybody, sorry, Sean, anybody on this call, do you have... Um, something in place around hotels that you may use as a as a business um, within your policies or um, agreements and and so forth around modern slavery. I think if we put that one out there, Maria, good shout, and we'll have the contact list if anybody does have any in input or update on how that's done. I want also want to investigate if anybody on the through the membership can. Uh, shed some light on it or give some policy guidance, then we can share it amongst the group, uh, which we much appreciate. I'm conscious of our time, and I do make that promise that we'll finish bang on one o'clock, as you know. I'd like to thank Neil and Mary for their input. It's interesting that uh, you know, we've done a bit of travelling here. We've talked about India, went to South Africa, Bangladesh, Qatar. Now we're going to come back to Scotland. 
um, because you know we've seen a 19% rise in victims in Scotland in a year. Um, and as Neil mentioned, I think there's no getting away from uh, probably what kind of underpins that is possibility of blaming Brexit or accusing Brexit of being the cause of all of that. But you know we are seeing an increase right across the UK, and we are seeing it here in Scotland uh, as we into 2021 last year. So much so that actually we have a victim coming to the office at three o'clock today who's looking for work. So I'll be coming out to the community of Sam's um, shortly once once we meet him and ascertain his needs and his wants and location, all that kind of thing. I'll come back to all of you about if we can help support. As you know, one of the pledges for all of the businesses that are on here that we'll support anyone into full-time permanent work where we can. So I'll come, come back to you about that as well. Final thing I'll finish on just before we go uh, at SAMS, we've been running a joint programme with the Refugee Survival Trust and Ashurst, the legal firm, the global legal firm, to um, run an educational programme for those seeking asylum in Scotland um, about what good work is. This cohort, and very topical as we see the news in Rwanda uh, over the last day or so, but this cohort of people are open to exploitation as we in our communities around us and as i mentioned about lester that's what we see those people that can't work legally are being exploited so those asylum seekers are earning around 40 pounds or getting 40 pounds a week to survive on are naturally just out there so we're running a program through sam's with bright work ashurst and the refugee survival trust to educate them on what good work is what paye is what national insurance is what a payslip looks like about what exploitative work actually is now, I'll dare anyone to go into Gumtree after this call and just type in cash in hand work and then put your city or town where you live and you will be surprised to find out how much work is out there below minimum wage offering cash to do the kind of jobs that we see people around us living and doing. That's me finally. Um, thank you very much again, Mary and Neil. There's been some, some good words that have come through the chat function. I will send out... The recording, the transcript, and I will also send out the links to the DACA principles, the IGM's website, and to Institute of Human Rights for Business as well. Thank you for everybody for taking part, and I'll be in touch shortly. <laughs>